everybody, welcome back to the Dow of Wow. This is the second part of a two-parter uh, featuring John Bevan, one of our collaborators. So if you haven't listened to part one, maybe you want to listen to that first. But if you haven't and you just want to plow straight on, that's all cool too. Um, okay, let's let's move on, shall we? So number three is managing clients. What well, have we learned about that? In seven <laughs> <years>? <laughs> Maybe it's not that different from managing colleagues. So Doug just said, I'm really easy to get along with. <laughs> and maybe part of that is true because I kind of spend a lot of time thinking about what people need and the sort of compromises that need to be made potentially or like how do you usefully avoid conflict to get something done at work whether it be with your colleagues or um, direct comms with a client um, or when is it useful to engineer a bit of conflict because you know that you need to get that decision made to get to the next stage of a thing or um, so there might be more overlaps with like number two on the list than maybe we first thought when we glanced at the list. Hmm. We There's lots of things we could talk about here with managing clients because, as you say, there's overlaps in terms of ways in which you reframe the conflict. that, and, and sometimes you can feel like, or the client can feel like there's conflict, or you can feel like there's conflict, and like you don't feel the same way and sometimes surfacing that and checking in and bringing your full self to work can help realize where people are at we did a retrospective yesterday with a client where they we we had been very annoyed with them um and they had no clue <laughs> we thought they knew and were just being annoying and they had no clue for like months that we that that we hadn't got this information or didn't have access to the thing um and it was just literally such a small thing which had really affected that relationship like we delivered mm. um what we needed to deliver um like it was a funded thing and and the the people the funders were happy but like as the project just felt like oh like a grit your teeth kind of project but it was based on People, project managers changing and communication not being as good as it could have been and assumptions being made and all that kind of stuff. And sometimes you just need to get everything out in the open during the project rather than when it's finished. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting because the, I mean, the assumption was on our part, really. Yeah. Like we, yeah, yeah. We, we understood something that we were being discouraged from a particular thing. And, you know, because we were flat out told, but then when the project changed and, pro and people changed, the, the new people, like, they would have encouraged us to do this thing if they had known that we had, you know, if they had known that we had even wanted to do it. And we just assumed, you know. And so that, that assumption from us actually, like, really affected how we felt about the project. I was also going to say that, um, you know, in terms of, like, client managing clients and clients relationships we have a page on our wiki where we thought about um, the different kinds of communication with clients um, so I've learned quite a bit about how we need to be adaptable and flexible to how clients want to communicate 
and because we have clients that are that are a lot like us and very open and you know just kind of say all the things do this you know very close relationships and we also have clients that are sort of more on that you know businessy side like a little what's it, like straight laced i would say where they you know where they have um sort of a, a, a level of professionalism that we need to mirror because we are professionals. We're not, you know, I mean, this podcast is probably, uh, we're quite honest on the podcast, but you know, when we, we're always honest, I don't, I don't want to say we're dishonest, but um, being, you know, having a level of, um, I get I, Formality. Maybe. Yeah. Formality. Mm-hmm. That's the, that's the word. Exactly. So we had Kaylee on the podcast um, in one of the early seasons, and I've learned. So we talked about Abby at Outlandish and Kaylee at Outlandish, like the way that she would not accept <clears throat> that level of bureaucracy. And like, you know, she, she was the one who like really opened my eyes to the importance of check ins and bringing your full self to work and all that kind of stuff. <coughs> And, you know, she just won't have it if clients are just like, yeah, I'm not fine, let's go on with the work. Um, and I've I've seen that in practice when I'm working with them. Mm-hmm. And I've also seen it work in our projects. Like, we're focusing more on the negative side of things here because usually most things go fine with clients. And the main things I would say, if you're listening to this, you know, not sure about, like, well, how does it work? I've only ever had a job. It's processes. Like, Laura's very good at documenting the processes that we go through. So having a kickoff call internally having a kickoff call with the client, making sure our scope of work is reasonable um, and everyone knows what's expected. I find it really useful to visualize everything so that it's not just a bunch of words. Um, checking in to see how things are going during the project, which is what we should do in that project that we just talked about. Um, having a retrospective at the end, all of these kinds of stuff. Talking about budgets and and having all that kind of awkward conversation as, as well. But I remember a project we were part of, and this was last year, and one of the people was just like, well, I find these check-ins quite disingenuous, actually. Let's just get on with the work. Um, And at the end, they apologized, saying that, actually, I've had a really bad day. I do value these check-in and check-outs. And when I'm feeling like when I'm feeling stressed and stuff, I just want to get on with the work, but actually I, I really do value bringing all, the, all of our full self to, to, to work and stuff. And I think, well, what are we doing in business if we're not trying to, you know, it's not all just trying to make everyone feel better all the time. We've got work to do, but part of the work is being able to do the work as effectively as possible by bringing our full selves to work. So, yeah. John's just nodding. <laughs> well, I, I wasn't in that meeting, I don't think, but sometimes people who react in that way, it's because they aren't used to being somewhere that you're asked what you feel and you can say, actually, I've had a terrible day and getting the kids to school was a nightmare and we couldn't find the sock and the swimming stuff went missing and then we had to buy ingredients for my son's home economics lesson like on the way to school at the last minute no one knew what was going on and my head is absolutely everywhere else like people who want to skip the check-in is sometimes because they don't want to ignore the things that are going on outside of the meeting but they also don't they're not used to or they don't feel comfortable sharing those things so it feels 
like disingenuous or it feels like oh this is just a stupid performative I say I'm mm. fine when really I'm not fine whereas quite often that's not what's going on but they aren't used to or don't feel comfortable saying you know everything isn't great or, mm. or they're used to working in a reasonably hostile environment where anything that you say like that could be used against you in, in future mm. so I, I worked um when I was in Sea Leadership Academy, at the school academy, um, I talked a lot about the work I was doing in my thesis with my boss and other people in senior management. And that was used against me to say that I was prioritizing my stuff outside of work. Whereas that would never happen in the environment that I'm in now. Um, so yeah, maybe sometimes people are a little bit reticent in sharing stuff because they know they're in an environment where it's a bit tooth and nail. So, hmm. and my advice to those people would be maybe try and get out of that situation. Right. Let's move on to number four. four. Left. Yes. So finances and sustainability. So here we're talking not about the sustainability of earth, which is um, something which we should all be concerned about, but the sustainability of the co-op of the business. Yeah. Hmm. What have we learned in seven years? Uh, what have we learned? We've learned that we've had a few different approaches to the kind of tracking and, you know, more processy, boring side of things that uh, Doug mentioned earlier. I don't actually enjoy it, but I can tolerate it. And we could maybe outsource more of that. But I think it is actually important that at least one of us but actually more of us pay a bit of attention, understand how it works, are not just leaving this to an accountant or a bookkeeper or someone else who doesn't understand our work so well. Um, so, yeah, we I've learned a bit more about, you know, accounting software and spreadsheets and bits and pieces over the last, um, especially over the last year and a bit that... Um, I've explicitly been doing that for the co-op. One of the things that I've found, so we talked earlier about how some people just kind of want to be shielded from all of that running of the business stuff, but it's actually really eye-opening in terms of like the way the world works, because we live in a capitalist world, which is based on a lot on money and money being the, well, the root of all evil, but also like the way that the world works, everything ends up being reduced to numbers on a spreadsheet, etc. And like, I still wouldn't be able to sit down and exactly tell you how that works. But I know a lot more than I used to. Um, and also, I know, like, how you can do certain things, which will help the sustainability of our organization by maybe moving things between tax years or um, like why you need a, an accountant because they take the burden of doing this kind of thing away from you or why you have to invoice this particular way or what to do if a client says that they need to do this or that. And also like how much money you should set aside, what the difference between having a surplus and a reserve is um, all of these things. And it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to learn all of that before setting up a business. This is stuff you learn on the job and you figure things out together and you ask your accountant slash business advisor for, for help. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a journey that you go on. 
Um, but I find it, I find it interesting at times. Like it's not something I'd want to do every day, but I do find it interesting about how you can run a sustainable business together with other people that you like in a way that doesn't feel like a massive slog. Like we've already talked about, I do about 23, 24 hours a week of, of paid work compared to what I was doing before and earn more money than I was doing earning before, which is like double win. Hmm. I think the sustainability and what we've learned about the sustainability of the co-op itself over the years is kind of interesting because in the first couple of years, the sustainability of the co-op was completely based on us remaining members of the co-op. Like we, it took us a number of years to get um, we are open into a position where um, where we have any you know any sort of reserves. You know, the when we founded the co-op, I think all four of us. Um, I think we all put in a thousand pounds so that we would have a little bit of budget to pay for things like, you know, subscriptions to tech tools that we use that help us collaborate or whatever. Um, and over the years, we changed the buy-in to, we lowered it um, to be a hundred pounds to become a member. And there's other requirements to become a member, but um, we changed it to be a hundred pounds. And then we said that we had all put our thousand pounds is actually 10 years um, worth of membership fees. And it's been, I mean, it's, it really has been a journey in terms of like how, how reliant the sustainability of the co-op was on each of us as members individually to now where the co-op is looks sustainable. Um, even if one of us needed to go dormant or whatever, the co-op wouldn't just stop. Um, mm-hmm. and, but the, but it's taken seven years to get to that position. And, and also uh, just that you can pay yourself for things as time goes on, you get more sustainable for things that you couldn't pay yourself before. So in the early mm-hmm. days, you're doing a lot of, a bit like if you've got a startup or something, like you're doing a lot of basically free work and you've got your client work and they're just kind of like building up and building up and building up like that kind of sweat equity, that horrible term. But then seven years in, where if we're not doing client work, we've got enough money in the pot to be able to pay ourselves for internal work that we see needs doing. And that's not just immediate. Remember one person who wanted to join our co-op asking if we had sick pay and holiday pay. Like we'd love to get to that stage. That would be amazing. Or maybe we wouldn't because that's not how we want to run our business. But either way, that is part of the mind shift. Like having conversations about finances and the sustainability of the organization and like, are we going to exist this time next year? Being a question that you don't hide away from everyone who's involved. Like we share our spreadsheet with our state of the union spreadsheet with um, collaborators as well as um, just members. It's good to have that kind of stuff a bit more transparent. So number five uh, on our list is marketing and networking. What do you think, John? Have you learned anything in the past seven years about marketing and networking that you didn't already know as a master networker? Um, lots of things have changed. So post-pandemic, not as many in-person events, fewer opportunities maybe to do the sorts of networking that would have led to, you know, either directly to work or to get into the types of rooms that shape, you know, where the budgets get allocated that you can hoover up work in a couple of years' time, like lots of 
those sorts of things have changed a bit. Uh, we were talking a little bit the other day about Twitter and how much I certainly used to have a pretty useful, active network of you know people that I had met and worked with over the years that were a very good source of um, opportunities and both paid, voluntary things for the co-op, interesting new gigs um, that has, you know, I haven't looked at Twitter for, you know, a month at least. And Mm. I've probably looked a handful of times in the last six months, which if you told past John that a few years ago, I would have thought that was incredible. Like, okay, so what, what's replaced it? And it's like nothing. Nothing, really. exactly. It's just exactly. disappeared. Um, so, yeah, that's a bit weird. And then the other thing I always think about when I'm thinking about marketing network for co-ops is I'd always sort of thought and uh, hoped, maybe even as strong as that, that there would be the marketing and network that we as we are open do, but then there's also the stuff that you can tap into that exists inside the cult movement that would mm. be a kind of multiplier for any of your own efforts because you're a part of uh, a, you know, a global, absolutely huge movement that in some way that would act as a multiplier. And maybe that hasn't panned out to be as effective a multiplier as I had, um, as I had hoped because as is maybe the sentence or the sort of some riff on this is maybe the thing that I have said most over the last 10 years, other than like tidy your room to the kids probably or something, is that co-ops are simultaneously absolutely huge and, you know, there's 3 million of them and $2 trillion worth of activity and a billion people are a member of a co-op, but also at the same time, hardly anyone knows about them and the movement doesn't do a very good job of um, that kind of marketing piece, I suppose. I actually, um, we recorded an episode in the same season with John Atherton, and he was talking about the global co-op economy, and I learned so much. I was just like, wow. Um, you know, the, the, he was talking about the history, the the current state of co-ops in the world, et cetera. And, and I asked him exactly that question, like, how can it be that this is an economic force to be reckoned with, a a um, a setup that is you know like worker owned equality et cetera et cetera, and that it still feels so niche and that people don't know about it and um yeah he I can't remember what exactly what his answer was but it wasn't satisfying I do remember that it was it was like oh well I guess we in the co op movement need to do more uh, to. To spread the word. The One of the word. things from that conversation was like, to what extent is being a co-op a benefit when you're marketing? So mm-hmm. a lot of the way, well, the main way in which we get clients and work is through referrals um, and like what would loosely be called content marketing. So we put stuff out in the world that people are like, oh, that sounds interesting. And they get in touch with us. Like it's not us cold calling people. Um, and so as part of that conversation with John Atherton, we were saying, well, to what extent is being a co-op of benefit when you're going out and trying to, to sell yourself and your and your products or your, your business, your services, whatever? And he was saying, well, 
in his experience, not so much. Whereas we've actually found it like it's not going to by itself win us business, but it's actually quite a valuable thing to have in the tech sector of like, oh, you're not just talking to a sales rep, like you're talking you're to talking someone to who owns this business. Yeah. Like that's that's like that's how we roll, kind of thing. So that's interesting. I think what John said, John Bevan said about the the networking angle and Twitter, it is a really interesting time because it's just like Twitter has just been yanked away um, and we're kind of filling it in by trying to find in-person events and LinkedIn and the Fediverse and weird slacks that people are on and and whatever. But there's nothing quite the same. And I wonder how things are going to evolve over time. I wonder if we're just old, though, because, like, if we all got on Instagram and started gramming our business, I don't know if that's what it's well, called. I, but... I feel like Instagram has a very I, – I, like, I only know it through other members of my family who have it, but it seems like there's a very – you know, we talked about mind shift. That was the first thing we talked about. I feel mm-hmm. like there's a way of living – and, again, this is going to make me sound like an old man shouting at clouds – um, but there's a way of living your life, which is like, everything has to be shiny. Everything has to be about kind of me and my influence on the world and stuff. Whereas I feel like the co-op vibe is almost the antithesis of that. Anyway, for the sake of time, we should move on. We've got two left working remotely and in real life meetups. The two of those kind of go together, like working remotely is what we do day by day, meeting up. Um, in a post-pandemic kind of situation, trying to do that a couple of times a year is what we aim for. Should we take those two together? And remember, the frame is like what we've what we've learned over the last seven years of working remotely and in real in real life meetups. Yeah, let's do them together. What have we learned? We well, the three of us have all worked remotely for quite a long time now. Um, like now everyone is a lot more comfortable, I guess. Mm. So there's some, uh, definitely some changes there for the better. Um, I, I'm trying to think, are there any things that you could say have been a downside? It's maybe we're not quite such the experts anymore, I guess, or people aren't. Like they don't think it's magic that you manage to get work done and you're never in the same place in the same way that some people used to. Well, I can remember when everyone started working from home and there was like this scrabble on Twitter and LinkedIn and whatever, like I've been working from home for a long time and I've got some stuff to tell you. And we kind of contributed to that as part of our um, kind of how to run remote meetings course, which I think was actually quite useful and people have referred to it rather than just like, uh, I, I'm an OG uh, remote worker. Um, I Personally, and I've said this many times before and presumably on this podcast as well, for me, working remotely is amazing because I, like when I worked at the university, I was on the disabled register for... Like, I can't stand fluorescent lights. I was in a shop yesterday, and I was only in there for, like, 10 minutes, and I couldn't deal with the fluorescent lights. Like, it triggers me massively. And so I was on the disabled register at the university. I had to sit next next to a window when I was on my workstation, whatever. Whereas when you're at home, I've got my sit-stand desk. I've got my different microphones and my monitor and things set up, and I can walk in and out of my office and all this kind of stuff. And it's just so, like, these things I take for granted until I reflect on them. 
and it must be the same for other people as well, I guess. Big, big uh, thing, I suppose. My history of working remotely, I became a dad when I was just uh, not that long into working at Mozilla, I guess. So I used to work from home some of the time. Um, and since then, so for about the last 10 years, have sort of dialed, gradually dialed up the amount of working remotely over those 10 years. So, and for most of the last seven, either with um, We Are Open or any of the other jobs I've done have been entirely remote, really. Um, and I can't imagine the version that I would have been going into London every day. So my partner goes into London three days a week. Um, I can't imagine what our lives with two kids in schools just then around the corner would have looked like if I weren't able to have the flexibility of working remotely um, to be able to do school drop-offs and pickups. And my kids don't even really think that I work. Like that's mm-hmm. that's like they are skeptical that I actually do because I try and just work when they're at school and they see me on a laptop, but they're never sure whether I'm doing work or doing other stuff as well. My dad, like I, I'm trying to be in terms of the, the style of work I do. I'm trying to be the opposite of what he. He was always out, and if he wasn't out, he was at home doing his master's thesis or whatever. And like he was always like at a desk or out or behind a newspaper. And the only interactions I often had with him were at school because he was my deputy head, um, or as my football manager which is mad. Like he was out all of the time doing stuff. And I'm like the inverse of that. I'm always around. I'm always there. I'm always available and stuff. And that's only possible because I'm working remotely and I own my own business. Like Mm. that combination of those two things. I mean, I'm sure my kids would tell you that's a massive downside because I'm never not around. Always around. (laughs) (laughs) But like for me, it's massive because one day they will not be here. And Mm. like... I can say that I was always around them. Um, so for, yeah. And and like, it's not just the parenting side of things. It's the relationship with your partner side of things. Like not being out at your separate lives all of the time, but actually being also, together and having lunch. Yeah. And also, I mean, also like my relationship with my neighborhood, because I work remotely and own my own business. It really is the combination. But like we last weekend, uh, we ran an annual festival. Over a thousand people came. It was massive. There's like six people in the neighborhood that run this little, little, this huge neighborhood (laughs) festival with music and food and face painting. It's a festival for kids. Um, And the last couple of weeks is like the last couple of weeks up leading up to the festival. There's so much to organize. And because I own my own business and I work remotely, I can intercept the guy who's, um, you know, delivering the lose or, you know, like little things like being able to, you know, completely in control of my own time means that I can just like quickly, oh, I need to pop out, pick up the bread from the baker got to do it today because it's 200 bread rolls and you know they need to get rid of it now you know like these kinds of things that that like help help your neighborhood or your community 
um, have actual tactile relationship in the real world is possible for me because I work in the digital world. Mm. Whereas if I had to, you know, commute somewhere and be nine to five in a building somewhere and go to a cafeteria and like that would be, I wouldn't be able to do those kinds of things. And I see that my, you know, my neighbors who have more traditional kinds of jobs and, um, have to go somewhere, they couldn't do those things. They can't pick it up, you know? And, so the, and the flexibility thing. of owning a business makes a difference because I see people and I was one of them, you know, when I was employed for a couple of years in the, in the middle and during the pandemic, uh, before I rage quit, um, like pretending that you're still working when actually you've, you've you're done for the day, like being logged into <laughs> like just moving the mouse around. Well, like, be, like, no, being out of the house and doing stuff, but like making some comments on slack or whatever platform it is and like that mm -hmm. performer development that you don't have to do when you can bring your full self to work and are trusted by other people that you're running the business with so let's talk about in real life meetups we said we were going to talk about it together we kind of didn't hmm. uh, and we're getting we're getting on in minutes with this episode apparently we have learned a lot in the last seven years of running a co-op turns out turns out um, so what have we learned about in real life meetups? I think a lot of people uh, during the pandemic, or right after the pandemic, learned how, just how important it is actually to meet with real people from time to time. Um, being inside for two years in a row was, I think, hard on everybody. But in yeah, vi vitally important, fraught with danger. So not long after we had our, our in real life meetup, in January, I don't think related. I think it was far enough apart that uh, it wasn't me getting the train back from uh, Amsterdam. That, uh, but I fell ill. I was really ill, pro probably for the first time in my life that I've been really, really go to bed for two weeks ill and not really be able to do anything at all. Um, so it, there's like the especially for me I love talking to people it's how I make things happen I like to you know speak to people and imagine a world and try to recruit them to make it happen um I find that much 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 more interesting and possible to do in real life but then um it also comes with the danger of you're all breathing on each other for you know hours or days so it's something that we I'm weighing up more than I ever used to, I suppose. It's funny, you know, in the, in the before times, um, when we all, uh, worked, worked at Mozilla, um, we, you know, whenever there was a Mozilla summit or a Mozfest or an all hands meeting, the big joke was the Moz flu or the Moz mm. bug. Mm. Um, you know, everybody got sick after one of those meetups, but this is, you know, 10, 15 years ago, way well before COVID times, pandemic times, um, and we all always just joked about it, like, haha, Moz flu going around, you happen to be at the event, you know, and now, 15 years later, like, I mean, the it's, it, it's a completely different mindset and feeling post pandemic, like actually watching a pandemic happen and being part of a global pandemic was, you know, a, a really weird experience, but it really changed the way that I look at conferences and stuff. Um, from you know from that health perspective yeah. well it's part of um self-care which i think underpins everything that we're doing here like we want the business to be sustainable but 
we need to be sustainable. Like we need to manage our energy levels, like you said before, Laura. And the only way you can do that is to be healthy. I said that I'm the fittest I've been for a long time. Um, John, we know how hard that hit you. I feel really bad. I never sent you a get well soon card. Um, but yeah, just like the being able to like know what what it is like you don't have to go to this event like you can choose to go to this event or not yeah and they're in real life meetups we can choose to minimize our threat or to just meet together and not in a hotel in the city center or whatever like um again we're not some of the things at mozilla like i enjoyed a lot of the stuff at mozilla but some of the stuff at mozilla i had to like psych myself up for because I'm not as much of an extrovert as other people who are who love going into the workplace and things. So we get to design our meetups for the kinds of things that we enjoy. And we're all slightly different, but we know where the overlaps are, and we get to really enjoy our meetups um, and have the occasional argument. Um, apart from <laughs> instead of just instead of just like doing the corporate thing. So yeah, the the interaction between working remotely and the in real life meetups. Um, is an important thing to get right. And I've really missed traveling like once a month. Um, Hmm. And one of the things we haven't even mentioned the word climate really in this whole conversation, but that's something that's definitely changed over the seven years of our co-op into something which is actually on one of our five focus areas that we've been focusing on, that we've been looking at recently in terms of the topics we want to talk about to the extent that who knows in Amsterdam, when we meet up next month, we might even talk about having a climate budget for travel. So these things evolve and change over time. How you run your business, how we run the co-op changes as we get older, as the organization gets more mature, as the world change and we as we learn things. So it's it's been interesting for me. Yeah. Um shall we do some some final thoughts and and try to wrap up this actually quite long episode? Yeah, John, is there anything that you kind of wanted to say, um, maybe an eighth thing that that you've learned in particular, or anything that we haven't talked about that you wanted to to mention now that you've come back on the podcast? Uh, No, there isn't an eighth thing, but maybe that's just ingrained in we always try to do odd numbers on lists, (laughs) and I'm (laughs) hesitant to add a number eight for some reason, even if it is thought to be a lucky number in you know for lots of people um so no i don't have an eight thing i just will thank you for inviting me it's been nice to come back on as a guest and i'll send you your quiz questions for my recommended books you know next week or something. <laughs> can you give us time to read them <laughs> good stuff laura any final words from you uh, I'll just say to both of you from the bottom of my heart, the last seven years has been a roller coaster ride, but I'm actually really happy with my work life. I think that um, the co-op is a good thing, and I'm glad that we're doing it together. Yeah, likewise. And one thing which hasn't come up but is fundamental to how we work now over the last 18 months is co-working. And we've talked about this, I think, on a previous podcast episode, but the difference between just working by yourself on things as by default and co-working on a daily basis is completely different. And I so enjoy working with other people on almost every single thing that we do. Um, It makes a big difference to my life, my mental health and my enjoyment at work. So it's been a good innovation. 
just off of Laura's comment, I'm really now missing Brian because I'm sure he would draw an image of Laura being on the roller coaster, getting off and joining the queue to go back on again, <laughs> rather than being on the roller coaster and then having to spend the rest of the day cleaning all the sick off your shirt. <laughs> oh, what a what an image That's to finish a great on. Comic, yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. We will see you next time. Cheers for now. Bye bye.